Welcome to Building Belonging, a podcast of the New York City Bar Association and its Office for Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Belonging. In this episode, the diversity gap in the legal pipeline. Tanya, Angie, and Mary Ellen speak with Ashley Burnell, Director of Research and Impact for ProInspire. Ashley was the research consultant for a City Bar report that made recommendations about diversifying and strengthening the pipeline to the legal profession. Ashley helped us understand the findings of the report. She also talked to us about some of the hierarchies in the educational system that work against DEIB. How many people are we looking over? How many Black and Latinx students are we looking over because they don't come from a name brand school? And we talked about the way that students fall out of the legal pipeline because legal education is often designed to be unsupportive. How can you determine who's giving their best if they're not even allowed to speak or to be or to grow as a student? Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the city bar. Here's Tanya Martinez-Galanucci. Welcome back to Building Belonging. Today we are talking with an amazing friend of the office, Ashley Bernal, who's actually been a friend to the office way before I was in this seat. And actually... I have to give some credit to Ashley Bernal for me having the seat to begin with, you know, me participating in her research and getting on a panel for the New York City Bar because of that research truly started my career in this field. So giving you all the flowers, we are going to talk a little bit about your research today. So I'm Tanya Martinez-Galanucci. I'm the executive director for the Office for Diversity, Equity, Inclusion and Belonging. And I'm going to punt it over to Angie. Hello, my name is Angie Avila Lanciati. I am the manager of communications and development, and I echo everything Tanya says. I'm very excited for this conversation. I definitely feel like we're amongst friends, so I'm excited to get into it and hear everything that you have to share with us, Ashley. And I'm going to throw the mic over to our hero, Mary Ellen. And I am Mary Ellen LaRosa. I'm the diversity inclusion coordinator for OD. And I'm going to kick it over to Ashley if you could introduce yourself and then tell us what belonging means to you. Absolutely. Hi, I'm Ashley Burnell, and I am the new Director of Research and Impact for ProInspire. I will be training executive directors of nonprofit organizations to help diversify their organizations and also offer support and suggestions for racial equity for POC leaders in nonprofit organizations. And what does belonging mean to me? Ooh, how much time do you have? <laughs> I guess I guess belonging means that you actually are a part of the work that you do and the space that you occupy, that you're not feeling as if you are giving a handout or given a handout, I should say, but more that you have earned this position and that you are welcomed in the position and the space that you are occupying. So that's what belonging means to me. Ashley, you worked with our office back in 2018 when we were the Office for Diversity Inclusion before we rebranded. So when you worked with us, you worked to examine the landscape of the pipeline programming. Could you tell us a little bit about your findings? Oh, absolutely. So just to give just a slight background, when I was hired, the office had already done research on how could we be more effective in servicing the entire legal field in terms of better supporting or making pipeline programs better. That's their crowning glory is the pipeline programs. So they did a report, an extensive report through a task force, and they found that, okay, yes, we are making strides 
in many areas where more women are being included in the legal profession and making partners, more LGBTQ, more Asians in terms of representation. But what we saw, what they found was that Black and Latinx people were actually losing ground in not only making partners, because that was a somewhat of a focus, but more so they're not even pursuing a career in law. And they're definitely not attending pipeline programs. So I was hired to see what was going on with the pipeline programs and how could the office and the New York Bar Association better support Black and Latinx aspiring attorneys specifically to be able to go through the entire pipeline. So what I found was a lot. <laughs> I found a lot. <laughs> because like I always make the joke, you know, I'm not an attorney and I don't have a legal background. So working with attorneys was very interesting. And I don't say that condescendingly. It was like attorneys love to talk. And so whenever you can tap into the resource of attorneys, they're like, yes, I will give you all of the information. I will give you more information than what you could ever dream of. So it was really, really wonderful working with them. So we circulated a survey where we got almost a thousand respondents, but we wanted to keep it current. So we did, you know, I think it was recent graduates up to like 10 years. So we wanted to make sure that it was relevant to, you know, the current climate of aspiring attorneys. So we circulated a survey and it was almost, like I said, we, I think we got almost 700 qualifying respondents. And then I did 26 in-depth interviews. And what I found <laughs> was that, yeah, we had some work to do, that the, not just the pipeline programs. Funny enough, the pipeline programs weren't the core of the issue. What I found was that it was the legal profession at large that needed to address a lot of not just the structure, but the culture, the climate, and the overall approach to how Black and Latinx students are being recruited and actually ultimately boxed out. So what, what the report found, just quickly, we did, you know, program visibility, like in terms of barriers to the pipelines. Like I said, the pipeline programs, according to the respondents, that they're working perfectly. So the ones that we have, they're actually great. The problems were 85% of the respondents said they never even knew what a pipeline program was. That's a huge problem, right? Saying that there's no visibility, they didn't even know. And even the ones who are participating, they're not participating until law school. So you're at the end of your trajectory and now you're being exposed to programs, which is kind of counterintuitive to the pipeline, which should be starting around at the latest middle school. We only had five participants who actually went through the entire pipeline program. So that was like five from middle school to law school. Out of a thousand people, there were five. Five Black and Latinx specific, eight overall. So then, so that was one thing. And then- That is crazy. Uh, Ashley, no, what is yeah. the, do you know, what's the percentage of that? Do you know? uh, well, no, that, so of all of the, of our sample, it was 5%. It totaled out to 5%, yes. That's crazy. That it's absolutely insane. So that was a shock to our system. Like, wait a minute. So not only are 85% of the respondents reporting that they didn't even know what a pipeline was, of the ones who were participating, only 5% of those participants actually went through from middle school to law school. So yeah, they're working, but we, you need more people and to get them at an early estate. So then that was one thing. That was a major, I don't want to be dismissive of that at all. That was a major finding. So another finding was the financial support, right? Where 
people who were participating, some respondents reported that they would have liked to participate, but they couldn't afford to go because they were either unpaid or they were doing a time where the schedule was so rigid that they could not navigate both, that they needed to work. They needed to contribute to their household so they could not go to do an internship. They could not take off during the day where most programs were run and not go to work to contribute to their household. Also law school, we found that law school fees and expenses were a burden in terms of like the LSAT, which again, schools are moving away from the LSAT. So we should see some improvement because that was a barrier in terms of not just the LSAT, the fees, but also the prep. The classes are extremely expensive, law school fees. And one of the biggest findings was the bar prep exam like the bar exam prep, where you have the Barbary courses, they're extremely expensive, and also the sabbatical that you take to prepare for the bar, where unless you're working for big law, you don't get three months off of paid, you know, a paid leave to prepare for the bar exam. That's creating an extreme disparity. And when we get to the part where what I didn't include in the report, we'll talk more about the finances in terms of people are being funneled out just with the cost of law school in itself. It's not even yielding the results to even pursue. So then one of the other findings that we had was public interest resource support, the whole structure of the legal profession and the idea of who gets the most resources are people who are pursuing big law. When it comes to Black and Latinx students, you are the least likely to be recruited for big law because you are the least likely to attend a top tier school. And so that's another final issue where we talk about disparities. If you're not going to places where Black and Latinx students are attending, then you're not recruiting to participate in big law in big law firms where you have representation in terms of income and just the positions of power. That's the uncomfortable truth that the decision makers are coming from big law firms. And so if you don't have the Black and Latinx representation, not just in terms of the physical appearance, but the actual mentality, your experiences, the the diverse experiences, then you will continue to have what the respondents consider to be a culture of the legal professions that's inherently exclusive of Black and Latinx students. So then we also found, and then like lastly, we had like gaps where we talk about first generation, you know, the experience of first generation law school students, where they are reporting that they're experiencing a huge disparity because they just walk in on the first day not knowing what to do. And the first day, and of course I learned very quickly, First day matters. Day one matters in terms of when you're going to law school, you need to be prepared and ready to go fresh out the gate. And first generation, especially Black and Latinx students, they are already behind on day one because they're not knowing how to navigate the space. They've, many of them, so I, I want to say 36% of the respondents reported that they were first-generation college graduates, and 76% reported that they were first-generation law school students. So that's a huge, huge deficit when we're talking about needing to be prepared on day one, you know, where if you're coming from not even just a family of attorneys, if you're coming from a network of attorneys who are telling you, okay, this is what you need to do on day one, this is who you need to connect with, this is how you navigate the space to show up ready to go on day one, 
what happens to those first generations who don't have, who have parents who didn't even complete high school, who barely completed college, right? So when we talk about these disparities, we have to go at the source and not just, you know, what the outcomes are that look a particular way. And so lastly, the, the report found that mentoring and student tracking was extremely, extremely important in terms of maintaining or promoting the success of Black and Latinx students, where mentorship, like, again, going back to that first generation gap, where they're like, okay, if I had a mentor to say, pull me aside and say, hey, this is where you need to kind of tighten up. This is what you need to expect. This is who you need to connect with. This is what you need to do to navigate this space. Then that lessened the burden. The people who reported having mentors said that that was invaluable to their entire experience all the way back to middle school, having someone to keep an eye on them. And then lastly, with that student tracking, where the pipeline programs, they were reporting that, yes, the pipeline programs were amazing. But then once the job was complete, then you're done. And so you're kind of pushed out and cast out to fend for yourself. And they're still needing not a handholding because that can be condescending and say, well, you know, the legal profession is hard. You need to be able to go get them. It's like, no, people who are generationally, you know, coming from families who are attorneys, they're getting that and no one's questioning that. A hundred percent. Ashley, this is First of all, I can listen to you talk about this all day long. (laughs) And I think you really gave a good snapshot of like the takeaways. But for those who have not read Ashley's report, please do read it. It is seriously what we all need to read in this industry and to hold ourselves accountable for those findings because they're real and they are specific to New York City and they're specific to our industry. And also the first report, the one that was done by the task force ceiling leaks, another just like work of art, like just so well done, so thorough. I mean, this is what happens when brilliant people come together. And just so that everyone knows, we at OD have really re-engaged and we really want to bring all of these things to fruition. And thanks to your support and thanks to the task, task force support for doing the groundwork, you know, like now we need to carry it through. And what we would love to hear from you is the color behind the data. What you learned were the obstacles for Black and Latinx students in their words, because the anecdotes and quotes you share in the report spoke to my soul, especially as a Latina who went to New York City public schools. So please do enlighten us. Oh, where do I start? (laughs) So again, going back to the survey, I wanted to get the gist of, you know, who are we talking to? What are the demographics? And so... We wanted to look at people who attended New York State Law School. So that was number one, priority number one. So of that, we kind of unpacked or I looked and say, okay, so who went to not just the New York State Law Schools, who went to New York undergraduate? And then I asked the question of who attended New York State High Schools, specifically in New York City. Now, why was that important? Because when we talk, first of all, New York is literally one of the most, if not the most diverse city in the United States. And when we're talking, because we're talking specifically about Black and Latinx students and how the New York City Bar Association can better support the pipelines, when we're talking about having Black and Latinx students actually go through the pipeline from middle school to law school, you have to look at New York City schools. And so what we found was that less than 20% of the respondents actually attended a New York City high school. And of those New York City high schools, they went to specialized schools. 
New York. Okay, so I'm not from New York. And when I have, you know, I have kids. And when I went through the whole high school process, if you're not doing a private or, you know, a private school, they give you a phone book. (laughs) They give you like literally the size of a phone book. And I'm saying that because there are thousands and thousands of schools in New York City. Yet when you look at the people who participated, not just in a survey, but who are coming to New York state law schools, they're not coming from New York City community schools or New York public school systems. That's a problem because that's where you're going to find your Black and Latinx students. And so why is this important? Because again, it's not just about, you know, recruiting from the top schools. It's going about how these schools are measured in the bigger picture, right? So if you're, if you're not, if you're discrediting community schools or public schools, I'm a product of New Orleans public school system, right? And I am sitting next to and working with the people who went to Ivy Leagues and elite private schools. And I'm a product. And I don't think that my education is any less than, or, or, or should be seen as less than any of you know, higher or private schools. And so again, had I not had access to certain things, then I would have been, I would, you know, be looked over. And so how many people are we looking over? How many black and Latinx students are we looking over because they don't come from a name brand school? And you so are, that was you are ch- dead right. And I, and you know, I kind of fall into both categories <laughs> because I'm a New York City public school kid, you know, through and through from pre-K through 12th grade, I did not go to a specialized school, mm. which I will tell you is something that always came up. Even in college and law wow. school, people would be like, oh, so you went to like Bronx Science. I was like, nope. Or people would ask me if I did a pipeline, like, oh, you were an SEO. Nope. I had no pipelines, no specialized school, wow. right? And I was a teacher. So let's just say me and the New York State public school system were like this, you know, for those who can't see me, I just did my fingers crossed and (laughs) insinuating we're tight because I know it very well. Right. I know it very well. And here's some other, you know, you gave some really great factoids about New York State public schools and this district. Here's some other really important ones. New York City public schools system is the largest system of schools in the entire United States. It is the largest by itself. Right. Not only is it the most diverse, but back in 2013, 2014, when I was interning for the DOE, I had to write a report. Do you know why I had to write a report? Because while we are the biggest system and why we are the most diverse system, we were also the most segregated system in the country. So yes, there's a lot of diversity, but not in individual schools. If you go down to the different schools, different neighborhoods, there are many schools that are all white. There are many schools where there are kids of color and only kids of color. There is not a lot of integration. And so it is not surprising to me that only certain kids from certain schools make it into our pipeline. And that's exactly the problem. Even though I'm not from New York, I am personally connected to finding talent at public schools. And, you know, I went to a great public school where I was, what, if not all if not 100%, but it's like 99% Black. And so, you know, we ended up having people go to Ivy Leagues, go to service academies where, you know, if you just looked at the demographic and say, oh, well, no, that's not, and, you know, X, Y, Z, even down to how they rank GPAs. A 4.0 at a particular school is not the same as a 4.0 in a community school, right? And just the way that we are even 100%. Basing 
you know, th- how we value certain grades and, and the experience and education of certain schools, that is creating a disparity. And it's 100%. unwarranted in my opinion. It's, oh, it's definitely unwarranted. Unwarranted. It's de- and that's why I say, 100%. you know, I'm one of those people who I've been on both sides. I've straddled both sides. Right. And let me tell you, this is a joke I say regularly. So sorry if you've heard it before. But, you know, when I first went to Yale, I was feeling all kinds of ways imposter syndrome and all these things and I just in my mind I was like how can I compete how can I compete all these kids went to private schools you know they had people writing their essays for them let's be real you know tutoring them doing all these things like I'm doing this by myself zero support like how can I do it and then I started taking classes and then I started meeting people and you know I always say this joke you know the meme with Kim Kardashian where it's like I'm not I'm not ugly I'm just poor you know you see her pre and post surgery for me it was the same thing I was like I'm not stupid I'm just poor I just met you know I was just like once we were in the classes and I got to like participate I was like oh okay I see what it is but it's true all of this like arbitrary because it's arbitrary arbitrary hierarchies and this elitism they're on purpose there is a reason that the law schools are tiered Yes. There is a reason that only but so many people get selected from certain schools. The system is working just as it was meant to, right? Like and go yes. online, Google when these schools were open to people who were non-white or open to women or open to different religious beliefs. It is not that long ago that we were excluded. I was just watching a, my husband, actually, I can't even take credit. My husband was just watching a documentary on Tiger Woods. And in the 1990s, he wasn't allowed to play on certain golf courses. This is not the 50s. In 1990s, he was the first black man to play on many golf courses. They had to actually change their policies to allow him to play because he wouldn't have been able to play otherwise. Let's stop pretending that the segregation and the policies that keep people down are not in play because they most certainly are. And we know where they are. Feigning ignorance is not helping anyone. So I'm, I'm going to stop there because I know you have a lot more to share. I know <laughs> no, you have a lot more. Again, I'm sitting there like, yes, yes. And I said, okay, so again, why this is near and dear to me. Not only am I a product of New Orleans public school system, who I will sing praises all day and twice on Tuesday, but I'm also, I got my foundation at the University of New Orleans. Yes, I ended up at the new school, the fancy new school and all of the people and blah, blah, blah. But my foundation, and when you just told that story, my heart was racing because I'm like, yes. Like when you get to these spaces, like, you you know, coming from the University of New Orleans, when when I tell you that every single professor had me on the ground, like learning and making sure that I knew the art of research and the art of sociology. So by the time I got to the new school, I'm sitting around and I'm like, wait, I'm over prepared. <laughs> you know, like I'm thinking that I'm going to, I have to catch up. But the only thing that I needed to catch up was for mimicking the certain the elitism that was what i needed to catch up on not the actual skill not the actual theoretical perspectives not the actual grounded research that they had me in the field doing as you know as a first year graduate that people are not doing until they graduate but and that's no shade to the new school kind of is but you know no shade to them but in terms of when i got there i was already you know well above and over prepared sitting next to people who were there because of their their social location in society. And so that was a mm-hmm. huge shift 
for me. You know, so when you just said that, I was like, yeah, yeah, that sounds extremely familiar. And it also goes to the next part of this hierarchy. You know, like, again, I, you know, I can only speak, you know, so much because I did end up you know, at an elite institution like the new school, because, you know, I do play into, yes, you know, when you have the new school on your resume, that it does open doors for you. But when we, if we really want to be honest, like when, you know, I presented this information to the executive board at the bar and I, you know, I had to be very honest. And I said, if we, you know, like how far do we really want to take this? What is the question that you need me to answer. I said, because if we're just talking about pipeline programs, they're great. I said, but if we really want to talk about the disparity and, you know, in representation and attrition rates for Black and Latinx students or aspiring attorneys, we need to come at the source. And the source is the legal profession. And let's talk about these hierarchies. You are the decision makers. You are the leaders of the profession. And you're coming from a tiered school. Why? Because this is where you place the value, not where this these are the thought leaders. This is not where you're getting the most proficient. You're getting the name, the name brand. And that's not to discredit or dismiss because I do know hard workers that attend top tier schools and they really had to work hard. But I looked like I saw they had a video and I won't mention the name, but they had a video of like a graduation. And I saw that two they was it was one it was a woman and she was graduating and she was being presented with her degree by her father and her grandfather she's now third generation right she's not and again this is not to take away it's from not, her work but that's but this, but this is the whole argument with people who get defensive about talking about their privilege right like just because you have certain privileges doesn't mean you didn't work hard does not just, mean right that. it doesn't mean that you don't deserve it either no one's saying that you're not deserving no. you could bust no. your butt and still you know be a third generation person right like absolutely the point is let's not pretend it's that not. it's the same for someone like that and someone like me right who had zero it's not the same and we're not accounting for that and in fact we make it much easier for people who have all the connections and much harder for people who don't and there needs to be a swapping of that Right. There needs to be. Absolutely. Where do we need to actually put these resources? Where do we actually need to do a little bit more and go beyond just the basic? I even look at myself in terms of the privilege. I come from two college graduates. So college for me, even though I went to public schools, college was more of a next step. It wasn't a question. Graduate right. school was, you know, it was it was the conversations in the house like, okay, so where are you going to college? It was never like, if you're going to college, it's where you're going to college, where you're going to graduate school. You know, my dad was, you know, the only one of his siblings who had a graduate degree. And, you know, one of one, I think he was the only one who actually had a college degree as well out of six siblings. And so again, when we talk about that privilege, that is a privilege to wear it, it was not even a consideration, nothing else. I was streamlined into a college education, a graduate education, right? These things were, you know, and again, and I'm taking that, not to say that I grew up privileged, My both of my parents were teachers, but they made sure because they had college degrees that I would have a college yeah. degree. Those things are extremely important when you talk about navigating those spaces, know how, like for me with my boys, whether they choose to go to school or not, I am, you know, an adjunct professor. I know how to fill out college applications. I know what's important. I know what needs to be said, the language that needs to be used to be recognized and taken seriously. 
All of those things are make or break when we talk about who are getting positioned in these hierarchies because they are absolutely hierarchies. Schools are not being valued the same. Students are not being valued the same. And it's all about the performance, right? It's not necessarily about who's the greatest thinker, but it's who can relate that I belong in this space by your verbiage, by your clothes, by your presentation. All of these things are like, what school can I attach my name to so I can reproduce this network of elitism and make sure that I'm pulling in people who are on board with the overall agenda. And so that is that is one of the findings that, you know, we, it was unexplored because, again, I, you know, I had limited capacity in, of what I would report. But that is extremely important when we talk about those disparities. And then the pushback always comes from where we want the best and the brightest. You're not getting the best and the brightest. You're getting the person who can navigate the maze the fastest. And that doesn't translate into who is the smartest, right? So if, I, if I'm if i a person and I'm trying to navigate the space because I don't know, I'm walking in, not only am I going into it unknown, I'm actually going into it with blinders on. So I'm trying to get to the same finish line as a person who was given the map and the flashlight. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And it translates, like, I love your analogy. That is dead, 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 dead right. We're not getting the smartest. We're not getting the brightest. We're not getting the people who are best situated at thinking about problems in a creative, thoughtful, and meaningful way. We're not getting that. We're getting people who can get to the end the fastest. And then if you take it up one level, if you go to the firm setting or, you know, legal office mm-hmm. setting, I f- it continues, right? Yes. Because then it ends up being not who does the best work, the most, you know, thoughtful work, the most thought-provoking, whatever. It ends up being who can take the most abuse a lot of times, right? Like who can work the longest hours Ooh. without calling out <laughs> sick? Who can work with no weekends or holidays and not complain? Because they're like, wow, people are leaving, you know, People of color are leaving in droves. I wonder why. And it's like, well, you're already starting from a very small pool. You're losing the, uh, you're losing just as many non, you know, so white or, or non people of color, but there's a lot more of them, right? So right. there isn't, you don't feel the absence as quickly or as much, right? Because you still have people. Whereas with some of the smaller groupings, you lose one, you lose two, you lose them all. but i love that analogy and i love that even from the start we're not creating a system of schooling and education to create the best minds or the best problem solvers we're doing who can do it the fastest very different thing right and i am a teacher i'm a teacher by training right i have my master's in education i taught for six years i i still consider myself a teacher i approach law in the same way i approach teaching i i approach management team management and you can you know my colleagues on here you can ask them i want to teach everyone who i work with what i know so we're on the same page i believe in working as a community you know like it is it's how i approach things and so going into law school i i was like i got tricked (laughs) they they tricked me (laughs) i thought that i was going to be taught by people who know how to teach. <laughs> what a silly mistake. Why did I think these people would know how to teach? Well, because I was a New York City public school teacher and I had a full-on education about learning how to teach because it is a, it, it's something you need to learn. It's actually a science. Exactly. Right? Like yeah. how people learn yeah. is something you need to learn to be able to teach. 
No one had that as in law school. My law professors, you know, God bless them. Many of them were great. Many were not. They didn't have pedagogy. Like, I was just like, what is going on here? This is a trap. <laughs> this is not real. But it is the reality. And you find that in every aspect where you have some institutions, you know, like, again, my professors at the University of New Orleans, where, you know, personally, I find that, you know, everyone is not called to teach. You can be an expert in your field, but that doesn't mean that you are translating that into a way that you are being effective to your students and how they are learning and retaining information. And your professors literally are like are meant to train you for the profession. And so if they're sharing information with you, you can learn, you can listen to a podcast, <laughs> you know, like in terms of, but how do you nurture? How do you create the next legal mind or for me, the next, you know, sociological scholar or race scholar? You know, again, going back to University of New Orleans, my professors were teachers. They were accessible. That was the main thing to where I didn't walk into a classroom and they didn't make me feel intimidated. They make me feel like, you know, welcome. And that's like when you talk about pedagogy, that's what I brought into the classroom when I was teaching, where I wanted to make sure that my students were understanding. Right. They were understanding so that this can translate into whatever field they're going into. I had the luxury of doing that with sociology of, you know, creating a lens for my students to help them better understand. But when we talk about the legal profession, I, I the respondents going back to the report, people who are interviewed, they were talking about how the professors were almost their adversaries. And, you know, it's like how how strenuous or how can I push this student to be pushed out? You know, I hear I heard a lot about that in pre-med where, you know, it's a system of trying to weed people out versus nurturing. We don't hear that word of nurture and nurturing is not babying, it's not coddling, but it's actually creating the environment for someone to learn to make sure that they have the best environment to create and to expand their minds and to think to contribute to the field. And we're not having those conversations where if you're feeling intimidated by your professors, if you're feeling that you're in competition with your professors, how can I give my best? And how can you determine who's giving their best if they're not even allowed to speak or to be or to grow as a student. And so these are the core issues, not just, oh, let's recruit at these different schools, but what are the environments that we're creating to make sure that we are growing and nurturing the best students and the best, the next legal brilliance. That's 100% right. right. And and I know that you mentioned a few of the other components, like the grading systems. Yes. So the grading system was interesting because, interesting because I was, again, unfamiliar with, you know, the law school culture and, and because I didn't attend. And so one of the things that it wasn't necessarily a complaint, but it was more of an observation where you are the grading system in terms of like, you are only as good as your neighbor, right? So you are measured against you know, every other student in there. And again, we're, I'm not going to throw out the whole system, but we talk, We have to unpack that, right? <laughs> Let's use that language. We need to unpack what that really means because just because you may not be able to articulate your way, you know, yourself in a particular way or use certain verbiage does not dismiss the legal argument. And so even down to certain identifiers, like there was some research done that showed that they presented the same legal brief 
with two different names attached to it. And the professor literally graded differently based on who they perceived the person behind the writing was. Right. And so these are when we talk about the exclusive practices, that is extremely exclusive when we talk about literally something where if you're showing up again, going back to that day one, if you are showing up day one, not that you're unprepared, but not realizing that it takes a certain way to present information. That's not necessarily that that has nothing to do with intellect. That has to do with conditioning. Right. You're socialized in a way to speak. You're socialized into different words, into a way to present yourself, to let the person, the reader know I am on your team. And so we're not just looking, you're not just examining the legal argument. You're also making sure that it's wrapped in the right box with the right bow and the right colors. And so that whole grading system is presenting disparities for Black and Latinx students where, like for me, I'm Southern. So I always get that charge of, you know, I have to overdo certain things or make sure that I kind of mask my Southern drawl to make sure that I'm not dismissed as the dumb Southern girl, right? You know, I've lived my entire life like that. So many people are like, they don't know that I'm from New Orleans because I've learned to mask, you know, but if I'm in a familiar setting, but that does not take away from what I'm saying. I'm actually able to articulate myself a lot better when I'm comfortable and I don't have to think about the diction and the way that I speak and not saying that I'm incoherent, but the way that I speak, you know, in a public forum versus when I'm speaking comfortably, you could relate a lot more to my verbiage when I'm comfortable. Why? Because it's coming from a different place. It's coming from a genuine place, not something that is more performance. And so when we don't allow people to be their authentic selves, to present them this, themselves in a way that allows them to relate to other people in their own authentic brilliance, you're dem- not only diminishing, but you're missing out on what we consider to be the subjugated knowledge, the, the, the areas of the experiences that the people in position of power don't even realize that are there. Ooh, girl, they're not ready. <laughs> they are, they're not ready, girl. They are not, not ready. But someone needs to say it. Someone I mean, needs to. I, I literally live it. Like, you know, I mm-hmm. live, and so I've now come to, you know, I've been in positions or in spaces where I've been told to tighten it up. Oh, yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. And this is and where this is the professionalism know, as racial construct, right? This is exactly that. So and that goes to the other part that I didn't even get I, like there was so much. And so I know that Leah coined that term, but how it came up in the report was during the conversation of soft skills. Mm -hmm. So when we look at all of this, you know, like there's a, I don't want to say too much because I don't want to, you know, gas it, but there's, there's a little bit of research that talks about why black and Latinx people are not being represented in certain fields, particularly in the legal field. Right. So it's not just about your lack of education and lack. It's always lack, lack, lack. But when we talk about not the hard skills, because hard skills, even though we just unpack how, you know, that can present disparities where, you know, the hard skills are considered to be rigid. They're, you know, like tangibles, like grades and schools and, you know, writing briefs. But that's not the major part of what gets you hired, what get what gets you to partnership. It's those soft skills. And so when I when I pushed, you know, before I even asked the question, the soft skills came up. How do you what, what's the word they use? Smooth. You know, how do you become likable? How do you you know your congeniality? How do you relate to making sure that people want to work with you? 
all of that's racially coded. Whether you're quote unquote polished, which, ooh, what does polished mean? What? The- <laughs> I, I'm telling you, I literally had a professor tell me that, you know, they were like, oh, I get, you know, that you like to be comfortable, but, you know, you need to tighten it up. That's a quote. And so I was just like, mm-hmm. okay. And I made sure to extra loosen it up. <laughs> when I heard that, I said, Oh, so one, I, I literally said, well, you know, I do that on purpose, right? I said, because I don't question my intellect. Ever. Hello. Ever. But it's and, obvious that you're doing that, sir. And, and so you can, <laughs> exactly. And so you can question my intellect, but I, whenever I present myself, I make sure that I'm not a know-it-all, but I make sure that I'm very prepared before I open my mouth. So I'm not going to be questioned, even if I'm challenged, then yes, we are going to go toe to toe because I know what I know. So I don't have to present. And so again, if I am talking about diversity, if I'm talking about being inclusive, I have to be the change I want to see. And so I can't continue to, to play into you know, these hierarchical characteristics, if I'm preaching, we need to take people as they are and to see past that presentation to actually listen to what's being presented and the actual knowledge that's being shared. And so when I was told that, I said, oh, well, then that means I'm just a little bit too polished. Let me go ahead on and go the other way. (laughs) And And, so I started- said another way, you're not going to be- No. Subjected by this very oppressive- place or standards or culture and when you don't do that when you're not when you don't allow people to subjugate you they tend to get upset Absolutely. for some reason it's Extremely. so weird <laughs> well can i look can i give you my theory on why that is oh please because the more you because the more people allow other people to be themselves then they show their deficiencies because mm. they all they've done exactly all they've done is play the role. And so when you get somebody who's authentic, when you get someone who is not caught up on the presentation, but actually the knowledge that they're presenting, then now they become the outcast. Now they become the odd person out because now you have to present what you know and not how you just present. So just to wrap up, in your initial report, we made some policy recommendations. Do you have any additional policy recommendations? I think the biggest thing that I didn't share in terms of the recommendations, because the recommendations that I made were were important, but I think that my focus was what can be done now? Because the thing that we just talked about, that's a larger issue. And so until we get to the point of like, yes, let's overhaul the entire system, what, what can we do now to make sure that more Black and Latinx students are being pulled in as best that they can? But the one thing, the major thing is recruit at every school. Don't just go to tier one, tier two, right? Because that's one of the things that I learned was that the OCI, all of big law firms, they go to tier one schools. Of course, top 14, pretty much everyone gets on campus interview. And then they kind of trickle it down to tier two. And by the time you get to tier three, you need to be, I want to say, in the top 5% of your class to even be offered an interview. And tier four, they're not even on the table. That would be my main thing of exploring all schools, put resources into all tiered schools because you never know where your next brilliant legal mind will come from. There's a lot that gets lost in translation with grades and people who look great on paper. There's still that human connection of 
sit down and have a conversation with someone at a tier four school at a t- or expand or even just think about why should only the top 5% be offered interviewing at a, t- at a tier three school when the top 75% at a tier one school is getting it. You know, like you're already creating another unearned hierarchy or unwarranted hierarchy by saying, oh, only the top five should be granted those. So expand that, expand that. Recruit, make sure that you have, the more representation you have, the more expanded your knowledge and experiences will be to cover. Like we are all reflections of our experiences. And so when we only have a certain type of person to represent your law firm, then you're missing out on the other perspectives that can be factored in to create a tighter legal argument. So these are the things that it's not just about recruiting, oh, the lesser. No, you're just tapping into previously untapped resources. And I think that's the biggest thing. Expand your OCI to pull more people into big law. And naturally, the culture will evolve because you're creating space for more people who are not just the status quo. And I think you you hit the nail on the head. That's the whole point of having a diverse workforce, right? It's the idea that no one person can see the whole picture. And you need various people in various perspectives to get that glimpse. And to to your amazing point, if you keep on hiring people with the same damn perspective, then you're not helping anyone. And what we're doing isn't working and it isn't helping. And let me tell you, Ashley, if I hear one more time that the pipeline has run dry, I'm going to lose it. Because every time I hear that, I'm like, oh, your bias is showing. You said that to the wrong person. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm sitting here like, how? What pipeline? People say that with a straight face. In front of other people. People literally say that. Wow. Yeah. Wow. But this is why we need people like you shedding this light. Thank you so much for being here and shedding so much light. <laughs> Thank Can't you for wait having for the me. next Thank one. <laughs> yes, yes. No, seriously, this has been amazing. Thank you so much. Can't wait to, to do you. this again. No, it's my pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Building Belonging, a podcast of the New York City Bar Association and its Office for Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Belonging. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the City Bar. Find more City Bar podcasts on Apple, Google, Spotify, or Stitcher, or at our website at www.nycbar.org podcasts. This podcast was produced and edited by Eli Cohen.